crispy chicken thighs. That is what we're talking about today on the Bon Appetit Foodcast. Me and Carla Lolly music, recipes, techniques, all that. But first, I was in Portland a couple weeks ago for our annual Feast Portland Food Festival, and I sat down with Bonnie Frumkin Morales, chef co-owner of Kachka, a Russian-inspired restaurant that is just a ton of fun. Uh, I would say there's lots of vodka, caviar, smoked fish involved. Uh, It is a good old time every time. One thing, we recorded this interview off-site, so if you hear a small amount of background noise, that's just the city of Portland being Portland. So please forgive us. Let's do this. Here is Bonnie and me. Uh, so, Bonnie, I was talking to our mutual acquaintance, Emil Stonic from Bon Appetit, <laughs> and I learned, I think you and I are from a s- similar neck of the woods. Oh, yeah? So, my grandfather grew up in Minsk. Oh, really? In Belarus, yes. Okay. Which is And so, th- what's your background exactly? My family is from Belarus, um, from Borisov, and, my, and, and Minsk, which is sort of the, the capital of Belarus, so um, everybody kind of ends up there. But um, there, Borisov is an hour outside of Minsk. Okay. But yeah, and the name Rappaport actually, I, my my parents have lots of friends with the last name Rappaport. Oh really? Yeah. Well, I guess they they know one that's really close, and yeah. they're also from Belarus. Oh, that's pretty cool. So I had a feeling, but I you wasn't. Had a sure. fe- <laughs> I got a feeling. <laughs> did your no? So did your grandparents come over to the states, or your parents? My parents. What's, yeah. My parents came the year before I was born, and actually, my mother. I don't know how much of this is exactly what happened, but this is very unromantic. My it's mother never, was it's like, never exactly. It's always know, you right? can ask two different people, you get um, two different stories. And... My mother apparently said to my dad, I can't speak English anyway. I might as well just stay home and have a baby. <laughs> and that's how I came to be. <laughs> it's very romantic. <laughs> you, yeah. need, you need to tell them to rewrite that. Like have a, yeah. But yeah. And so now, but my but the positive is that my dad goes around telling everybody that I was made in the USA. And he's oh. like very excited about it. And he has this like thick Russian accent. It's really kind kind of awkward to hear your dad talk about you being made anywhere. Yeah, you're like, oh, but, dad, yeah. stop. Yeah, so, it's, so it's, I think you and I then probably had different upbringings in that, so my grandfather came over to the States like in 1918, sort of deserted the army, went right. AWOL, came to America and to New York City uh, in that sort of first wave of immigration uh, through Ellis Island and whatnot. Um, but so by the time I was born and grew up, you know, my father was born and raised in the States that I kind of grew up with a very just american household you know eating mac and cheese and and stuff like that so i i I don't think i was ever introduced to the cuisine that you probably just grew up with in your house what what was that like you know did you think like oh my god my parents are making their weird eastern european food again why can't we just eat you know fried chicken like everyone else oh man i wanted hamburger hamburger helper so badly yes yeah i hate it i thought it was awful and embarrassing i don't know when exactly i'm sure it was sometime in school you know maybe third or fourth grade when i really started like being extra embarrassed of it i know my brother who my brother was uh eight when they immigrated and so he like went right into like sort of older grade school you know like fourth fourth or whatever yeah when kids start start getting awful and i remember um, <laughs> i have a 10 year old i can relate <laughs> he um i mean my my nine-year-old's almost there yeah I, yes um he i know that um he, my mom would send him to school with like a cold hot dog which I mean, like, to, you know, like full disclosure, a cold hot dog. I mean, it's already cooked. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with that, really. But um, you know, in American culture, a hot dog should always be hot. Yeah, it's a hot dog. hot dog. Go, yeah, it's not a cold dog. Uh, exactly. But it's in Russia. It's just a sasiska, just another form of charcuterie. Yeah. And so why wouldn't you? You eat mortadella, mortadella cold, and that's an emulsified meat. Yeah. Mm. Um, 
Yeah. So, but anyway, so he would get like seriously made fun of. So I kind of missed a lot of that. I mean, I did like throw away a few lunches and like go have other stuff instead at the, you know, when I was in high school, I would like go to the vending machine and have like peanut butter bars and a Coke and like throw away the lunch my mom gave me. But mostly I escaped it. I mostly had like turkey sandwiches. Yeah. But at home, it was, you know, cabbage rolls and if you ha- borscht. Can, can you, in your mind, smell your home right now? The house you Oh, my God. In? So uh, the, one of the smells that I hated the most was the smell of mushrooms cooking. Really? Yes. Like mushrooms in what sort of fat? Uh, just like in, I think she would boil, like boil, or just maybe you di- maybe like making a duck salad or something, mm-hmm. like co- like chopped up and just cooking in their own juices. I I imagine she didn't use the word duck salad. Yeah, right. <laughs> I don't know what she was doing. I should probably ask her. But I have like vivid memories of like if there was a party that there would be like the strong smell of mushrooms boiling, and I hated it. It made me nauseous. Um, but another smell that I love, and to this day, like I have a dish that's on the menu right now for summer that is because of remembering the smell is um, beef. Like a hanger steak is what we use, but um, any sort of uh, beef steak uh, cubed up and marinated with a ton of onions and just straight distilled white vinegar. Um, Wait, so marinated in, in vinegar? vinegar. Really? Pure vinegar. Um, just vinegar? Yeah. Vinegar and onions? Vinegar and onions. And the smell when you open the lid after it's been marinating for 24 hours is intoxicating to me. Wow. Like I, yeah, it just. And, and then how, how would your mom cook the meat then? It gets grilled. So that gets skewered and uh, grilled like um, like a shashlik. Which is mm-hmm. um, yeah, um, sort of comes from the Caucasus, but the um, you know Russia and Belarus and everywhere from the fo- former Soviet Union now cooks on skewers on a mangal. Yeah. That's like a really that's like how so, people grill. So was she were they grilling outside at that point or were they cook inside? No, they grill like on a on a gas grill. Okay, instead yeah. of like in a in a mangal. But that that smell that that onion and um, meat. I know that that meant that there was going to be like a fun party that night like they would do it for a crowd everyone would sit out in their big backyard or i guess it was it was probably not a very big backyard i was i was small um but it was like full of like the whole neighborhood were um russian jewish immigrants um and they'd all like um leave their kids i i remember there being like monitors like everyone (laughs) would just like leave their babies in their houses (laughs) and just like go to the neighbor's backyard 50 yard monitor my mom uh she's actually polish grew up in in uh west dallas wisconsin outside uh, milwaukee but she was talking about back in the day like oh yeah like we would just like you know you you live in your little row house and when the kid was asleep in the crib you just walk down to the corner tavern all right you figure your kid's not gonna go anywhere (laughs) they're gonna go yeah you have a few beers you come back the kid's still there (laughs) but i remember yeah once we started having kids like you always had to have the baby monitor with and then the camera baby yeah. monitors we could see the kids sleeping and trying to figure out that like, could you go to the neighbors next door and it would still work and right um so at that point were your f- parents then were they friends with any uh non-immigrant americans who would come over or is it pretty much a the russian jewish sort of community that they would sort of entertain with um mostly just the russian jewish community i will say that so the reason we ended up in chicago is that the o- only my parents left kind of first of that generation. Um, and Wait, what year are we talking? They nineteen eighty. Okay. Nineteen eighty. Um, I think they left in seventy nine, and they actually got here in eighty. It takes a few months because yeah. you, yeah, it's complicated uh, immigration stream. Um, and uh, anyway, uh, my mom's great uncle had left. It sounds like your um, grandparents' generation, um, except he went through Cuba. Oh, wow. Yeah. And then kind of somehow, I don't know how he ended up ultimately in Chicago, but he went through Cuba around the revolution and ended up in Chicago. And so we came there. And as a result, we had all this family that was much more, 
very American yeah. and had very American traditions and were they foods. We- were they welcoming to you or yeah. Like, yeah I mean we kind of you know as my parents became more comfortable here and had their own groups of friends and all that they you know over time like we did saw less and less of them but the, I remember you know every Sunday we'd all go to Barnum and Bailey's bagels in Skokie um, <laughs> to get like you know brunch which was bagels and locks and cream cheese and yeah like fish platters and white fish and stuff so like that that part of the family kind of uh, showed some more American dishes, I would say, and like styles of eating. But they, I mean, it was more like Jewish specifically. Yeah. I guess. When when did you realize or as a kid, like did you become aware of like vodka on the table? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I The one time I, I my brother's eight years older than me and um, there's nobody in between. So he, he doesn't terrorize me per se, but obviously there was a period of time where yeah. that was what he wanted to do. Anyway, there was one time when he gave me, I asked for a glass of water. Oh, no. I was like fourth grade, maybe like 10, 11, 10. I asked him for a glass of water and I like chugged it and realized it was vodka. Oh my God. And my parents had no idea this was going on. There's like a huge party. Like how would they know? So um, I, they know now. It's not like I'm busting him on air. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, that's like maybe when I became aware of it as like a thing that people consume that I'm like, God, that's awful. But it was just so, it was just a part of things. I didn't even, I didn't realize people were getting drunk. Like it was just people having fun. Well, let's explain that because I think what's interesting about Kachka, which is as I was talking to Mio about it, he's like, it's like a dinner party, but a dinner party that like one that you've never been to before. And there's that (laughs) notion in America, uh, kids grow up and teenagers especially about like when you're drinking, you're drinking and you're drinking to get drunk and like right. you're pounding beers or whatever and shotgunning this and that. Um, in Russia and stuff, like drinking is part of the meal and it's part of the overall experience and yeah. the two are woven together. There's a really interesting word. The word is pianka and it is basically, if you were to define it, it would be like a drunk fest, like a reason to get drunk. But that's not actually what it is in practice at all. A pianka is a dinner party. It's a dinner party. People sit down. They have a ton of food on the table, like lots of zakuski. They're already preset. There should be no tablecloth showing. And there are drinks, obviously, um, and people drink and eat together, right? When I say drink together, I don't mean like we're all, we all have beverages and we're just sipping as we go and eating and we're all having them. I mean, literally in unison. So nobody drinks in between you, you all, somebody gives a toast, something, and it's usually pretty like sincere and heartfelt and something specific to the occasion that you're there for. Um, and then do the, do the toasts get more sincere and heartfelt as the oh evening my God, goes yes, on? Yes, <laughs> yes, absolutely. And it's amazing. So, and then everybody toasts or somebody gives a toast, everybody drink, clinks and drinks and eats and then another person gives a toast and 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 whatever and but the point is that that style of a dinner party some people will call it a pianka because you do get drunk yeah right like ends up happening and it's like viewed with much like it's a very positive thing it's not like i just threw a rager yeah which has kind of like a negative like you think of that and you're like instant hangover feelings just thinking about it this is much more communal and yeah. yeah and it's like but what's interesting is that like it's not when you literally translate it into english it makes it sound like something that it's not and it's actually just like a it's a it's a real sincere actual honest dinner party all right, so what I don't get is, so you opened Kachka in 14, 15? 14, yeah. 14. Not a lot of people were serving Russian food 
I don't know of any other rest popular contemporary restaurants. What made you think that, oh, we should we could open this as a business and be really successful? <laughs> we didn't know for sure. I think we hung our hats on the idea that dumplings are a great, you know, unifier and everybody gets dumplings and Russia has its own dumplings. And so I thought, well, as long as the menu highlights that, then even the people who are scared by other stuff that they'll come for dumplings. And that gave us safe like a little bit of a safety net, but it was there were so many conversations with like, you know, in the process of doing it, you know, like a contractor or a banker or whatever like when you're opening a business, you talk to a lot of people. Yeah, you need to sell it. And you get into yeah. like everyone just casually is like, "Oh, so what kind of restaurant are you opening?" And like for us that was a really hard question to answer. And it part of it comes with baggage where like yeah I there not only aren't there really any restaurants doing that um there there's also like a really negative connotation of what this food is it's people not are like, just, oh what are you gonna do serve borscht yeah well yeah. It's, well like and that's that's if they know something yeah but like a lot of people are like russian why like what or like, you like, what is if that you boiled grew cabbage up, oh yeah, or if you grew up in the 80s and and russian you think of the soviet union and bread lines and right exactly no, and so you have no that negative connotation yeah. um and especially because i would talk about it as a soviet restaurant which it really is because the really complicated thing is that my parents immigrated in 1980 the soviet union was still a thing they immigrated from a place that is now called belarus but when they were there that's not what it was it was the soviet union yeah. and so the food on their table in a inadvertently is Soviet. They didn't have a choice in the matter, whether you, you know, believe in that politically or not. It's just the fact, you know, my, we talked about shashlik before that hanger or the, the beef in the vinegar and everything. My dad learned that from a guy who was from the Caucasus, maybe George, I don't remember exactly because he was now living in Belarus because there was so much of this like cross pollination and, and people being moved. There was something called like a Soviet Sovietization campaign. And so they actually moved whole populations to other parts they would move native um ethnic russians to parts of georgia and then move georgians into russia and all this and all over the place to get everyone to like to commingle or i don't know what be soviet yeah be soviet um and so the food then is soviet i don't have a choice in the matter yeah. it just is and yeah it's it's crazy so how much when you open kachka at first how much did the success hinge on you feeling or your servers feeling they needed to sort of educate the diners how to enjoy this food what to order when to drink it I yeah feel, you know. i think a lot we put a, i put a little blurb on the menu um that uh is like about the we have this thing called the ruski zakuski experience and that was part of it too like we wanted to make sure people if they felt like it could order a bunch of little things and try it and make it almost feel like a zakuski table like you would have at home but portioned down for a smaller number of people. And in that little box, we also talk about how to drink like a Russian. And that was important to try to get people to understand a little bit of, you know, that the restaurant isn't just about the food that we're serving, that it's we're trying to give you a cultural experience too. Um, and yeah, there was a lot of making sure that the servers were on board and making sure that everyone was describing every dish and that they really got it. And even so much so that, I mean, this is moving forward, but last summer we took our staff to Russia and it was somewhat because we wanted to give back because working in restaurants is <laughs> really it's hard. hard. Yeah. But the other reason was that, yeah, you can't just like open, like if you want to learn about French culture and cuisine, um, there are a ton of books out there and podcasts and, um, you know, uh, YouTube channels. Instagram and, accounts. Yeah, all that. right. And there's just nothing real. I mean, there's not nearly the dearth of that information yeah. for Russian food. Okay. So I was there a couple of years ago with some folks from Bon Appetit and I feel like I need more practice. So d despite being, I guess, half Russian myself, um, 
I think perhaps I had a bit too much. I had more vodka than food, perhaps. Yeah, probably, yeah that's the danger. <laughs> so how do you monitor? What do you advise? Like, how do you keep pace? Yeah, well, fat is really important oh, in okay. everything. All right, I, I like mean, fat. Fat is important. Yeah. It's, a, it's healthy. Um, and when it comes to alcohol, it's important because um, it, yeah, it increases your tolerance levels. Uh, Russians, some, like... Like real experienced Russian drinkers say that if you eat some sala, which is um, like kind of like lardo, it's cured fat back, uh-huh. um, before you even start, that oh, really? that like it's kind of like base layer. Yeah, it like sort of like lines your stomach. Um, I don't know if that's actually scientifically proven. It's worth trying. <laughs> Not worth trying. But the point is to eat a lot. Yeah. People forget. Eat as you drink. Yeah, eat as you drink. Keep eating, keep eating, eating, eating. And that's, I think, why portion size-wise, sometimes people are, like, amazed at the amount of food on a Russian table. I mean, it's not just meant to be a lot of hospitality. It's not, I mean, yes, there's a hospitality aspect to it where you want to make sure people feel welcome, but it's also like, there's a real reason because people, you need to eat that if you're going to drink like a whole handle of vodka. And it goes on, the the meal goes on for a while typically. Yeah, typically. How often um, have you had to let diners know that, you know what, maybe, maybe you've had enough. (laughs) Do you ever say, why don't you have some water? Um, you know, I don't, I'm not in the dining room, uh-huh. <laughs> but right. yes, we, we do take that really seriously. And, um, yeah. So it, people do get cut off. Yeah. Um, and sometimes they get offended. Whatever. That happens in every restaurant. I don't know. Definitely. Well, I, w- I will say this in th- this day and age of Uber and Lyft and everything that helps a lot, yeah, you know, big time. Uh, especially in cities like Los Angeles where people would typically drive everywhere and go out to dinner and then get back in their car. And oh. now it's like, okay, at least you're. You're going to get in yes. a car service sort of deal yeah. and share a share ride share and yeah yeah um, hopefully not a scooter <laughs> yes oh my god I see well they have those little motorized kick do they scooters. have those yet in New York they I was in um, actually L A last year doing this TV thing and I was like kind of in that Venice Beach Santa Monica area and you would see people on the motorized scooters like in Venice Beach on Abbott Kinney like at night obviously it had a few drinks. Going fairly fast on right. the sidewalk with like boyfriend and girlfriend on the back, and you're <laughs> like, "This is not going to end well," you know? No. And like, I don't. And it's like, "How is this legal and completely unmonitored?" <laughs> and I'm like, nah, "Okay, you know, something bad is going to happen." Yeah. Um, so, uh, all right. So then, wrote the cookbook. Are you doing a follow up cookbook, or how? What was that experience like? And were you able to sort of convey what you wanted to about your experience, your upbringing, the food, and whatnot? Um. Yeah, it was so, because, you know, to the earlier point of there just isn't that much out there. That's kind of why we wrote it is that there, there hasn't been anything published in the U.S. in like th- almost 30 years. Yeah. Um, so that was really important. And as a result, I like I really took that to heart and it took like a solid three years where I mean, between the writing and the recipe testing and I had a co-writer, too, um, and um, being involved in the design and the layout because I felt like that needed to convey the right message, too. And I felt like it wasn't quite happening without like, I don't know, maybe I'm just sticking my nose where I shouldn't, but I wanted to have a, a hand in all of it. And um, it was a really intense project. And as a result, I'm like still not ready to go back. <laughs> I mean, it was, I, it was such a labor of love. I think if you're a little bit more divorced from it and it's more of just like, this is your job, I'm a writer, that it's easier to just like pump it out and, and at good quality level. But for me, like I'm not a writer, that's not natural for me. And so it took a lot of energy and effort. And also I was doing it when my son was, my second son was just born. I was like, oh yeah, sure. I can finish a manuscript while I'm at home with a newborn. Like I'll, like I have nothing, I'll, I, I'm for, I can't be at the restaurant right now anyway. I might as well do something. Yeah. Um, and it, that was like the worst thing to do. 
What about um, we did an issue, I want to say a couple marches ago uh, called Generation Next about how there's this wave of chefs who are children of immigrants and cooking the food that their parents grew up with, but sort of modernizing it, maybe Americanizing it, whatever word you want to use, guys like Chris at Night Market in L.A. and whatnot. How have you managed that in terms of do you get people saying like, oh, this isn't authentic or this isn't truly Russian and right. and, and the notion of trying to be respectful and authentic, but also understanding who your audience is and trying to make it accessible and appealing? Yeah. Um, yeah, definitely. What, what's really funny to me is that it's so frequent that um, somebody complains, I'm not complaining, but they're saying that this isn't authentic and doesn't taste right about the things that are probably the most authentic or the things that I have messed with the least. The, yeah. um, cabbage rolls is a really good example. So I had no idea really until I got into this that the cabbage rolls that my mom makes are her cabbage rolls and also regional and also somewhat based on um, culture. So like apparently that's like considered to be a Jewish style of cabbage roll, like sweet and sour, lots of tomato sauce. Um, and there are some uh, parts of Russia or um, c- cultural differences where they look at them like, what is that? That it, Those are not cabbage rolls. Yeah. Um, and so like that pains me so much because I'm like, I'm literally doing, I might, I change the meat first. It's like I put lamb and pork in there because I, flavor profile wise but other than that literally I I stood with her one day and I wrote down everything she was doing because she doesn't make she doesn't have recipes and that's what our cabbage roll is it is literally what she does at home and more people say that's not authentic than anything else What's it funny, like I mean, blows that, the, my mind the, the authenticity police which kind of drive me nuts most of the time I mean you could argue it's been going on forever if you ever go to Italy you know like the way someone makes their Pomodoro sauce in one town right. another town over they're like yeah. no 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 that's not how you do it and take, this is how you do right, it right and take Italy and how what the size of that country and yeah. then multiply it probably by I don't know 40 to yeah. give it the total landmass of the, the Soviet Union I mean that's insane and so yes of course your grandma and my grandma don't make the same cabbage rolls but then other people who do have that experience I've had people literally in tears over those same exact cabbage rolls which is mind-blowing to me um, because they are like homesick and this reminds them of home so now that you're four years in with the restaurant and when you want to introduce a new dish do you find yourself going back to the archives, to the the food that your parents might have grown up with? Or do you find yourself like, hey, I'm a chef in Portland, I'm American, and I'm going to sort of riff on something and sort of take a new turn on it? We go both ways. Mm-hmm. And these days, um, there's more and more being incorporated from my um, chef de cuisine and my sous chefs, where I, which is really fun for me because I get to be the editor. Yeah. Um, and that, I think, creates even more opportunity. But yeah, when I'm when I'm thinking about dishes, it's sometimes I'll I'll remember something out of nowhere that I hadn't thought of before that I remember as a kid. Or my mom will come running, she'll like call me up and be like, "Bonnie, I totally forgot about this thing that we used to make back, you know, whenever." And um, and then I'll I'll be inspired by that. Um, and then other times it's trips to Russia, or something that I saw more recently. Like we have this thing on the menu right now called um, Caesar Blin, which is inspired by um, there's a fast food chain in Moscow called Tirimok which they actually tried to do a couple in Chicago or in New York and they I don't think they were I think they're closed <laughs> now but anyway it's this, it's almost like a McDonald's but for like Russian style crepes filled with stuff and um, uh, they have one called Caesar Blin which in Russia for some reason there's a Caesar salad on every menu every menu it doesn't matter what kind of a restaurant it is they just have a thing for Caesar salad and like 
classic Caesar salad. But that's or? the thing is like it's just like when you go to Italy and you have Chinese food. Yeah. And it's like not. And you it, can't figure out why it's different. You're like, it's but it's different. Not, yeah. yeah. So there's like anyway. So the Tiramisu Caesar Blin has like ketchup in it and other stuff. Like really? I don't get it. It's not Caesar. But I. But I. The idea. Like I don't know. I love hot lettuce. You know, like the like McDonald's hot lettuce. Oh, like you know, right? when it's just shredded and yeah. yeah. So anyway, so like <laughs> a lettuce. warm crap. Sounds like, it sounds like a good name for a band. Yeah, hot lettuce. Yeah. Uh, but like a warm crepe with like Caesar inside of it is like a brilliant idea. Yeah. And so I ate this thing and it was like disappointing. But at the same time, like I and Let, then you a light see, bulb went off. Yeah. And also you see copycats there of yeah. people doing it. Like we were at the like some museum campus and they had there was some like local vendor and they had a Caesar Blin, whatever. It's like everywhere. One of the things we're doing right now is this like Caesar Blin. And I'm like so excited. So, about how, did, it. so how did you adapt it? Um, well, we use, so sprats are, uh, fish native to the Baltics and it's, um, smoked. They're little tiny oily fish and they get smoked. And so we use those instead of anchovies because I think that's awesome. To make the dressing? Yeah. Uh Other than that, it's a pretty traditional Caesar dressing. So it's got this slight difference to it, but it's still like true to, you know, it's Caesar dressing. And then there's this yeasted crap that's used Mm -hmm. to for the outside, Um, and other and we oh and um, we fry we take whole sprouts and then batter them in like a parmesan batter, like parmesan tempura batter to give it like extra cheesy. It's almost like a cheese crisp, but a fish. So that's like your crouton sort of element. Yeah, and then you got the romaine. Yeah, then you toss it all together and And then then you wrap it while the crap is still hot. It gets wrapped up in there, and then more cheese on top and. Do you eat it with a knife and fork and yeah. you pick it up? Yeah, yeah, yeah. knife and fork. And it, I mean, that's like so nothing to do with growing up at all. But it's still like it's a it's a it's a really important, you know, experience for yeah. me. Like I it was, you know, more recent and it, it does come from Moscow. Yeah. And it's fun. And it's what it's like representative more of. Yeah. Of what I want to communicate. Um, shifting gears quickly before we go. Uh, we're, we're here in Portland right now for Feast Portland uh, Annual Food Festival. Um, love coming. Uh, I always want to check out restaurants. So besides Kachka and Kachinka, Kachinka, are there any places you're digging right now that you go to eat at when you and your husband have time? Uh, yeah. I love Coquine. It's my favorite restaurant in town. Katie Millard is amazing. What do you get there? Well, her menu is pretty seasonal, and it changes with frequency. She So I usually actually go there for for they, I think now that it's actually brunch technically it used to be they used to open a little bit earlier and they had breakfast and lunch mm. but now they do like an all-day brunch thing I think that's how they're calling it but um they always have this like sheep's milk yogurt with a really just lovely granola and cocoa nibs and um, they just they make a really good like soft scramble or french omelet depending on what they're doing it's like pro- just simple properly cooked eggs mm. just that the that's the best. It, d- it doesn't take a lot. Like it's I just so want hard, it to be done right. But it's so right. hard to get properly cooked eggs at brunch. They're I know. always overdone or underdone. I know. And clearly, like she cares about it as much as I do, and so like I am sure that she's like laid down the hammer on like this is how it's supposed to be done because like it's always correct. Yeah. And uh, whatever they just it's always rotating. They have this like buckwheat scone or biscuit. I guess it's a biscuit. Um, they serve with like some thyme butter and some whatever like jam or preserve they're making. That sounds it's good. just so that's like during the day and yep. at night it's it's like more complex sort of you know dinner dishes and they change. Um, but every time I go there, it's just it's everything that I wished I had thought to do with those ingredients. Yeah. You know, like it's sometimes people might make something really well and it's delicious, but it's not on my wavelength. It's just not what I naturally want because everyone's different. But like there, I feel like it's it's literally what I would want. And it just that's just personal, but 
it's awesome. My husband and I have the same business card, and so um, our Square account like pops up if you pay somewhere. Oh, I'll be yeah. like, I know. So anyway, he just went to Dunway Canting, and I was like, what? You went without me? Um, it's like down the street from us in Kachka, so it's a popular spot for us to go for lunch, and they have these like lamb noodles Ooh. that I love. There's, it's more like really like comforting, and like has there's they use a ton of Szechuan peppercorn. Yeah. So it's just got that like numbing, numbing tingly, yeah. lamby goodness that I I love so much. Uh, we go. I go to Nong's a lot, which is also in the neighborhood, which is just like simple, delicious Thai-style uh, chicken and rice. Common guy. And I don't know where I eat anywhere. Good. I don't have time to eat anywhere. It's uh, like I'm, I I might go. I might go to Nong's right now. I need. I need to lunch. I think it's, it's about one o'clock right now. Sounds like yeah, a good thing to get. It's good stuff. It's uh, really comforting. Well, Bonnie, thanks so much for coming on the Bon Appetit Foodcast. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. All right, thanks to Bonnie Frumpkin Morales from Kachka in Portland, Oregon. Uh, and now we're on to the crispiest, juiciest, all-around slam dunk dinner you can make. Chicken thighs. Carl Music, what's happening? What's up, Adam Rappaport? Looking at pictures of crispy chicken thighs on my computer screen right now. I do feel like there are times when I work at Chicken Thigh Quarterly magazine. You do. We do a lot of chicken thighs in this magazine. Love a chicken thigh. I have feelings about chicken thighs. Okay, well, let's. I, I want to hear them because I think, I feel like America's coming around to chicken thighs, but you and I are kind of relatively the same age and we're kind of products of the 80s. And in the 80s, it was all about like the boneless chicken breast. It just took over took over the nation. I mean, boneless chicken breast for dinner, boneless chicken breast in your Caesar salad. My husband grew up in LA and there was a time of their life that they refer to as the chicken breast years. Wow. Yeah, what does they that were mean? they were a family. There's four siblings, so there's four four kids, two parents and they had I mean, he just remembers that they had chicken breast for dinner like every night for like a year and a half or something. Funny, we had, so I had my Israeli cousins over the other night. We had like a bunch of them and then other cousins from Florida. So we had like dinner for like 15, a lot of kids. And kids, I know that you and I love chicken thighs. Little kids can be a little bit more particular and they like just like chicken, which to them is just white meat, boneless, skinless. So I went to the market. I went to Dixon's Farm Stand and Chelsea Market and I asked for a bunch of chicken thighs. I was going to make skewers on the grill. And it's so nice when you go to a butcher and they separate the breasts and then into fillets and they're equal thinness for each one. And it was such a, you know, it layered in between the wax paper or whatever. It was a pleasurable experience. So they made cutlets for you? They made flattened out cutlets. And then I cut those cutlets into like strips. Strips. And then I did the little ribbons on like the metal skewers. I marinated them and yada, yada. And the Israeli cousins were very impressed. They (laughs) ate a lot of chicken skewers in Israel. So they were like, oh, Adam, this is very good. Chicken. Very good, Adam. I was like, thanks. thanks so Meta. I do not to mix metaphors, but I do have a. Li- I have some beef with chicken thighs. Mm. So what I love, I think what we love about chicken thighs is they're they're dark meat, which means that it is more flavorful. Yes. So like, it, I think you can say that's an objective statement, not a subjective. That 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 it's more flavorful. Yes. Yeah, yeah. It's just it has more flavor. It's like a, a working muscle. There's just like more going on. More fat. More fat. It. More flavor. Um, it's got great skin, great coverage. Like on a chicken breast, even if you butcher the chicken nicely, like there's going to be 
parts of the breast where the skin didn't quite make it all the way across, you know? <laughs> like with the chicken thigh, you have this like... I feel like you say we need a redesign. Well, the new model, the new model's chicken's <laughs> coming out next year. There's Total coverage. Even coverage. Com- complete coverage. But on a thigh, it's almost sometimes it's like too, there's like extra fat. Yeah, that's like right. Sometimes you trim it off. Yeah, you and it's like, you, want. you know, really like enveloping the whole top of it so that even when it shrinks as it's cooking, you still have this like wall to wall, like wonderfully crispy skin. The other great thing about the it's thigh. Like a crispy skin parka. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> um, the other thing that's great is like only one bone, right? Just going from end to end. There's no like the drumstick has that little side mini mm-hmm. mini bone. So like they're easy to, to cut off of the bone and all that stuff. So lots to love about the chicken thigh. But in America, when you go to the supermarket, you can buy boneless, skinless chicken thighs or you can buy bone-in, skin-on chicken thighs. And sometimes, a lot of times, the most perfect way to enjoy a chicken thigh Mm -hmm. is skin-on, boneless. Because then you can make like a skin-on cutlet. So it's crispy and juicy, but no But you can just cut right through it. And that is not a standard fabrication in the United States. So it's just like, please, if you are a poultry fabricator, can you get on this? Yeah, I'm with you on that one because I, when I get the bone in skin on thighs, I don't want to get out the little paring knife and like kind of scrape and remove the bone before it's cooked. Yes, we fought about this. I know, we have had a lot of fights about this in the recipes section (laughs) of Bon Appetit, what we tell readers to do. And then when the bone, when the thing is cooked, I also don't want to like kind of manipulate my way around the bone. And as it gets closer to the bone, if you don't cook it enough, you're like, did I cook that enough? Oh, I don't know. So- yeah, in a perfect world, boneless, skinless. Theoretically, if you have a good skin butcher, on I mean skin on. Theoretically, if you have, if you have a very good butcher, yeah, they could do the bone. Even out an thing average butcher, yeah. would do that. But it's just like you can't go to the pre-pack for the four-pack yeah. and no. find. It's like one or the other. I'm willing to do it myself, you know, because I care about yeah. having it skin on, boneless sometimes so much. But I just wish it was standard. Before we get to specific recipes, I do think. The boneless, skinless chicken thigh is very friendly for grilling. So yes. I would take a single chicken thigh, marinate it, maybe some sort of kind of Vietnamese fish saucy soy, gingery garlic sort of thing, hit that over high heat. And I, what's nice about the thigh, again, because they are fattier and sort of meatier, they don't dry out as quickly yeah. as a chicken breast, and so they're more forgiving. Totally. Uh, I think that's delicious. They're also good if you cut them up and put them into skewers. Yep. Again, this thing, we have a recipe. One of my favorite recipes on Bon App was that are those sambal chicken skewers yeah. that we had on the cover like five years ago of a grilling issue. I have a certain son who has kvetched a bit about the chicken thigh versus white chicken meat on those skewers. Even if when they're cooked, he, he, he'll, call, he'll call it out? He complains about everything. So my kids like the thigh when I do them skin on with he the bone eat, he in. He will eat it, yeah. but he will let you know that he's not entirely happy with he's it. He's like, next time, could yes. you use the breast? Yes. I'm just going to ask. He, he exactly say that. So my guy's like, if I do it skin on and the bone in, it's almost like a giant like like dr- chicken wing in a way because you can pick it up by those little, the ends of the bones and just eat eat the chicken off the bone really easily. It's like a rib. It's like a McRib, you know? Riblet. Yeah. Yeah, but I will also say this. As someone who likes to grill, grilling enthusiast, I tell you, you just got a gas grill. Yeah. Oh, did you? Yeah. In the 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 city city of Manhattan? Because of neighbors complaining about my charcoal smoke, which I'm like, 
okay, like it's not nice to come home from work and your your apartment's filled with smoke, smoke because sure. you live on the second floor and the guy on the first floor was had the charcoal chimney going for it, and that's like a solid ten minutes of like a plumes of smoke coming out. True story. So our friends at Lynx, I bought one from them, the very nice sort of high-end gas grill. Because I was like, you know what? Damn it. I'm getting, if I'm going to do a gas grill. I'm getting the good one. I want it just like obscenely powerful. I want it just like searing hot. I've always been a charcoal grill guy. And what I love about charcoal grilling is how hot the coals get. Uh, And it's fiery and orange. However, skin on, bone in, thighs challenging to grill on a gas a hot charcoal grill because that all that fat all that skin yeah flare-ups i've had times where i've done it i've walked away and next thing i know it's just blackened yeah you've got skin inferno you really got to be really patient and mindful so i that's why i i kind of prefer the skinless boneless thighs when grilling because you can go hot you can go hot, and so if you make these sambal chicken skewers, I highly recommend you look them up on bonappetit.com. There's like sriracha and fish sauce and a chili paste, and it's like bright red, and it's like it's like spicy, but spicy sweet, kind of yeah. like sriracha is. It's not overwhelming. Those are great. I usually do that. I'll make like a sort of a basmati rice with some chopped up almonds and grilled uh, scallions and whatnot. Serve that. Rice and skewers. Oh, my God. You're really mixing around yeah, the world. Yeah, so good. I and like nice it. The basmati, nice... the sambal. Yeah, you know. <laughs> I will say this after talking... I think that actually was my last podcast. It's been a minute when Samin and um, Christina. Samin Nosrat. Samin Nosrat from Berkeley, California, Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat. And Christina Leckie from. Go Bears. That was a Cal reference. <laughs> my alma mater. Christina Leckie from Reynard came on, and we, we spent a good amount of time talking about grilling for like good cooks who want to grill more. And they were both like big proponents of the the medium heat grill experience, which is so great for so many things, including rendering chicken yeah. skin. But the thing with that is, and I promise this is not a grilling episode, we're going to get to a pan-roasted chicken thigh recipe. It does right into... Yes. The challenge is if you're doing a charcoal grill, that medium moment, it's like, when is that medium moment... Like in a gas grill, you can set it, you know where it is, but it's like, okay, this is too hot. And then like, okay, let's put it on now. And like, oh, I missed my window and now it's too low. Right. And then you're like, dough. And now you've got to kind of like, I'm just going to like, I don't well, know, soggy we did chicken talk breast. about backup fuel, but yes. All right. So we are segueing um, from grilling season into fall, which I like to call cooking season. Mm. It's like when you're back in the kitchen, back at the table, you know, you maybe been at the beach and all that stuff yeah. and barbecue. And now it's like you're getting back in the kitchen. My son calls it hoodie season. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> hoodie season, Sunday dinners, maybe watching a little football, all that. It's like, mm, it smells like there maybe maybe there's a fire in the fireplace. It smells well, like, like it smells, you can smell the leaves it's like outside. It's enjoyable to turn the oven back on. Yes, it's yes. not like a torture anymore. Dutch oven season, you take out your like crusade or salb. Uh, so let's talk about cooking bone in, skin on chicken thighs indoors in like a skillet because we have a lot of these recipes in Bon Appetit and we've sort of evolved over the years. But let's talk about some basic technique first. What, what, what if I just if I have go to the store, I get my six pack of bone in, skin on thighs, what am I doing? So normally I would tell you for, you know, searing protein and getting a crispy crust on a piece of protein to like Mm. heat up the pan, medium high, get a slick of oil in there, put the thing in, whatever it is. So So pork chop or a steak or even a skin on breast, I I would start high. But the thing that we love about chicken thighs is that the juiciness and all that flavor, a lot of that is coming from the fat. And when you start to cook them, it is very important 
that you are rendering the fat at kind of the same rate that the skin is taking on color. Because if you take on a lot of color before you give the chicken time to render the fat, you're going to have this kind of like crispy on the very surface, but oh. a little bit chewy yeah, or yeah, yeah. I've used the word flabby before. Like it's just not that kind of sheer sheet of yeah. of glass. Skin. Flabby flabby is one of those words that's never good. Like sometimes <laughs> like mushy could be like, oh, like the, the a good um oatmeal or something. Right. It could be genuinely mushy and delicious or like or squishy. Squishy's a good word sometimes, like a Martin's flabby potato roll. Like, flabby's never good. It's just not buttoned up. You know no, what I mean? It's not like good. Not, flabby. Good, not good in bathing suit season, nope. not good in chicken thighs. It's like flabby and flapping are just like <laughs> No. Okay, so so you don't Especially want the words, that. Flabby thighs, also not a good <laughs> phrase. Not what you want to know about. So you want to slowly render the fat. So yeah, the goal is to have that sort of the the layer of fat that sits in between the flesh of the thigh and the surface of the skin. Is this where we use that word subcutaneous? I was going to, but it seems so m- medical. But very, yeah, very CSI. There's that in between layer of fat that is in between the flesh and the top layer of the skin that you need to melt that. So mm. that's what rendering means, right? You're just you just need to melt that. And if and if you don't, you're going to cut through it and it's like that moment where the the skin might be crisp and you go to cut into it and then the the skin like shifts around and wibble wobbles so that is advocating just generally like a lower slower technique and actually we go we're very consistent in a bunch of our thigh recipes where we really want you to start in a cold pan right so before you even put the pan on the heat you might put you're putting a little bit of oil in there you're putting you're seasoning your thighs and you're putting them in skin side down and then placing them over medium medium high heat to start that cooking process process. and this is a thing i do this with like um very thick cut bacon as well this is just to start i've done a video on that on bonapetit.com right because if you start you know, when you put a piece of protein into a hot pan, the first thing that happens is it Seizes. will shrink up. Seizes. And it will also kind of create a crust on the very surface. And once that crust is there, it's just harder to get the fat to kind of yeah. flow, right? So that's why if you're doing something very fatty like duck thighs or um, duck legs or duck breast, you might actually um, cut some crosshatch pattern in there or poke some holes because that's just sort of making sure that the the gates stay open for mm. the flow to happen. I, so I've that, noticed that at fancy restaurants where they do a little crosshatch. Exactly. Or when you make duck confit, you take a skewer and you poke some holes in there, and that's just to make sure that like the pores are open. Yep. So starting starting in a cold pan, a little bit of fat, which is it might seem counterintuitive because the thigh has a lot of fat, but you have to remember that like the amount of fat that you put in the pan is actually conducting heat it's not like adding fat necessarily it's it's helping conduct heat between the surface of the pan and the protein itself so you need just a little bit of fat to get things going and then you know 12 14 16 minutes skin side down medium great time to do some other prep that you might be like you know washing some potatoes or slicing vegetables that are gonna maybe roast but at that point after that amount of time, without turning them back and forth, you just keep them skin side down the whole time. And if it's over medium heat, they're not going to burn. Medium, medium high. And you're listening, right? Yep. So you can hear the fat start to come out, and then they're sizzling. And as the fat kind of collects in the pan, it's going to um, help with the crisping, and all good things are happening. But at that point, then you put it into the oven. And you can just keep it skin side down the entire time. So 400, really? 425. Yeah. Can I say this? Yes. 
when it's on the stovetop, it's going to get a little splattery. It is, is that gonna, fair to say? There will be some splatter. Okay, so at some point, someone got me one of those weird, it looks like a giant mesh tennis racket that you yeah. put over <laughs> the skillet, and I was yeah. like... Splatter screen. Eh, I mean, kind of works. It's a little ridiculous. I don't know. I don't have one of those. One of the things that I do is get out some newspaper. So whatever, go to the recycle bin and get out a couple oh. sheets of newspaper, and I'll put a sheet of newspaper on my counter and a couple pieces of newspaper on the on the front of the stove like yeah. on the floor where i'm standing because that's wow. where it tends to like yeah. throw throw off i don't have a splatter screen though mm. yeah, and the newspaper is great for like then like yeah. when it's over you just yeah. yes but yeah and if you and if you do have a, a, a good working hood vent turn it on to sort of catch a lot of those oil particulates as, totally. they, as they're in the air but you know this is comes with the territory like yeah. part of this is about getting the fat to come out and and because you're not over like the highest flame it's not like yeah. you're you're deep frying and it's going to be like flying over the edge yeah. but yeah there's going to be some also, splatter there's going to be some splatter but you're not getting like as any sort of person with a small apartment knows when you try to like pan roast a like a ribeye in your apartment and it gets really smoky you're not getting that intense smoke like you would no Okay, so you, I like the newspaper track. Okay, so all right, so finish them in the oven. I want to get into like flavorings and how do we zhuzh up a chicken breast, but thigh. most a thigh, excuse me. Most importantly, which a lot of people want to know is like they don't want underdone chicken. Right. So how do we know when our chicken thigh is done? Because it feels different than a chicken breast. A chicken breast is kind of one consistency and kind of denser, you know what I mean? Yeah. I think that one of the things I like about keeping it skin side down the whole time is that once it goes into the oven, you've got the concentrated heat from the pan surface is like doing its work on the skin side. And then you have the ambient heat of the oven is like hitting it from the flesh side. So it really does help the chicken cook through evenly and you need that kind of surrounding yeah. heat to do that. So a couple of how do you know when it's done? Um, making sure that your oven is at the right temperature, right, is kind of key if the two if the two things that are happening are time and temperature. So so if you don't have an oven thermometer, it is worth getting. My oven at home is about 40 degrees off of what the dial says. Literally? So, literally. Wow. Um, so it is really helpful and enlightening. Yeah. So that's one thing. The other thing is, you know, our time and temperatures, we check these things. But so, like, set a timer, get an idea of you, when this thing's going to be like done. You like a local newswoman or something. <laughs> time and temperature on the ones. On the ones, yeah. And then you're taking your chicken thighs out. You have the, the bone and flesh side is up. So there's just, like, a visual check that you can do, which is that the meat changes color. Like, it doesn't go from that, like, light pink translucent oh, okay, yeah, yeah. to it should look opaque and brownish gray. And... I'm a big proponent of like if when in doubt like cut right cut up one. against the the bone. The bone. I also I people also, are like I, oh I don't want to let the juices out. Uh, it's fine. There's going to be more juices. Yeah. Don't worry about it. I also like to do the finger test. Like if you when you touch meat like like a chicken thigh which has various muscles sort of in there and it's a little like sort of juicier than just white meat. You know, at the beginning or midway through it's going to be kind of soft. Right. Towards the end, it'll be firm. Right. You know, you can, it's like that whole thing about using your hand, like the base of your thumb is firm compared to where your thumb and forefinger come together and it's kind of soft. And totally. And also thighs have, you know, they're they're not super thin like a cutlet. There's enough going on there that if you use a digital thermometer, you can yeah. get in there without poking straight through or getting an incorrect reading. Okay. So listen, I love like a basic crispy chicken thigh. Salt. Yeah. It's delicious. Sure. 
But what if I want to zhuzh it up? Like, zhuzh what, it what up. are some flavorings? What sort of recipes? Do we have any recipes in particular? We do. We have some that really great recipes. I'm going to pass you my. I, oh, I my, like this recipe. So this is this hot honey one, right? So this is, um, yeah, hot honey chicken thighs with fried bread. Mm. So one of the nice things about this recipe is you use the drippings, the schmaltz, basically the mm. rendered chicken yeah, fat, all that good fat, to f- make some fried bread. Oh wow! Fantastic. So, what, so you so take the, the chicken out; it's resting. Once the chicken comes you out, put, you put like just slices of country bed in there and fry. Oh my god, it's genius! Exactamundo. How do we get the whole? It's all beautiful red glazed and stuff. I'm looking so at the photo. The, that is this hot honey mixture. So for this one, you combine a small red chili and honey. So while the chicken is cooking, you bring that mixture to a simmer, and what that does is gets the heat from the chili to. Infuse. You know, merge and yeah. infuse into the honey. So you've got this like spicy sweet thing going on, kind of like the sambal chicken thighs that you were just talking about. Mm. And it also turns the honey this like really pretty reddish color. Nice. So when the chicken comes out, you drizzle that over. Oh, so you glaze it after. Because that's yeah, the it would like, burn. A would burn, and B, yeah. you, you want that skin crispy. Right. You don't want it like submerged in water and stuff and no. like, other things. I think if it was honey, it would. It wouldn't get soggy; it yeah, would just burn. burn. Okay, um, because it's too much sugar. So then, this is also paired with these um, endive, which is a nice bitter green. So then, Ooh, they like take that. really well to a little bit of sweetness, also. Yeah. So this calls for red endive, but you could use you could sub in escarole or regular endive, or even you know something like kale. So like the the bitter green plays off exactly. the sweet fatty thighs and then you have fried bread and salt fried bread is good on anything salt fat acid heat there you go all, all in play so that's a nice one and it's easy weeknight i like the chicken thigh because there's a lot of like downtime so another one that is a favorite one skillet crispy chicken thighs with harissa where the chicken thighs start the exact same way you don't put the harissa on at the beginning but then you toss do we talk about harissa for people who don't know? Oh, sure. Know? So harissa is a spice blend, Moroccan spice blend that has a lot of chili, but also um, it could have cumin, coriander, cinnamon. It depends yeah. on which one you buy. They're, okay. They will range. And you can get them in kind of pasty sort of form? Yeah, they'll come in either a jar or sometimes it's in a squeeze tube. Yep. The one um, piece of advice I would give people about harissa is that no two are the same. Hmm. So if you're not sure or if you're using it for the first time, just put a little bit on your pinky and yeah. taste it. If it's super hot, you might dial it back or you might yeah, find that like you like that. a little bit more. In this recipe, you put the potatoes get tossed with the harissa. Hmm. And that all roasts. Potatoes get to roast in the pan. Once it goes into the oven, you have your potatoes roasting at the same time as your chicken. So they're oh, little, so they're, they're small potatoes. They're roasting yeah. in the chicken fat. Exactly. Genius. With the harissa. Yeah. What's, so not, then to, what's, you get, not, what's not to like about that? And I really like that about, you know, sometimes, sure, could you cook a chicken thigh all the way through on the stovetop? You totally could. You would probably just take a little bit longer and probably you would turn it over to the flesh side. But there's something really nice about using the heat of the oven to finish evenly cooking through your chicken and then throw some other stuff in there because like in the 15 minutes that it's hanging out in the oven, you can cook a little small potato through. You can put other... Carrots, Carrots, parsnips. whatever. Put something on a different tray underneath. And then you got- Onions. Brussels sprouts. Brussels sprouts. Cherry tomatoes. Whole garlic cloves, unpeeled. Oh, yeah. But also, it's okay. I think I've done this before sometimes where I will feel like the protein has reached its doneness state. And I will take the pan out, remove the protein, and then put- 
the veg, what the root veg, back in the oven yeah. to either finish cooking through, or I might even hit it with the broiler. You love the broiler. I love the broiler. I'm going to write about the When's broiler. When? Uh, I think the, I don't know, like the February issue or something. The broiler But, but that way, if you want to crisp up the vegetables, you know, they're, they're, they're infused with the flavor of the harissa and the fat of the chicken, and I just want to give it a little, little extra little, crispin. Sure. Yeah, on the top side, you yeah, know. Yeah, as long as, you know, if it needs it, then it should get it. Any other recipes? One um, more, yes, maybe? Yes, the most recent one, I think this was from April, is lemon chicken thighs, and this one's very simple, but you actually roast lemons that are cut in half as well. So the chicken gets salt and pepper and it gets marinated with some vinegar. So this is kind of like... Oh, marinate before it goes in. Okay. Taking some cues from like the classic vinegar chicken dish, which is a classic, but then Vinegar Hill House also made it kind of famous. But is, there's it, a is, famous... It re- is it really yeah, a classic? Yeah, it All really right. is. Okay. It's a great combo. So you marinate the thighs in the vinegar then you dry them off as well as you can because you want that dryness. Exactly. You want the, that's how you get the crispiness. But because it, it has a relatively long medium heat cooking time. So even if there's some residual moisture on the flesh, like it'll spend enough time in the oven and in the pan to kind of throw yeah. off that water. And so it'll be enough submersion in the, in fat, the fat as it renders. So you're okay. going to be All right, fine. So, sorry. So the, the vinegar infuses brines of sorts, the chicken exactly. fuses it with flavor. And then same kind of process where they're going into the cast iron skillet it's medium heat getting golden brown then going into the oven and then while they're cooking you um sear off lemon halves and get this like kind of caramelized lemon mm. flavor you know what you know what everyone's and then into you these days that over so you've got the lemon you've got the kind of bright but also this like caramelized lemon flavor yeah. plus the vinegariness from the beginning so it's like the double hit of um, double hit of acid. So not one hit, but two acid hits. I'm looking at the photo right now, and I'm I'm not even listening to you. I literally don't even care what you're talking about. I'm just see those little. I was crisp, talking about Burning Man. I see those little crispy nubbins on the side of the yeah. of the of, we were talking about of the thigh the where there's edge. like extra fat that you could trim off, but why trim off? Because it's like so good and gets extra extra crispy just for crispy sake. And then it's, you have those beautifully caramelized charred lemons, and there's some garlic cloves in there. Because yeah, why you throw some garlic, be? but this is like the awning. You know what I mean? Oh like when God. you get to your front door and there's yeah. just like a little extra awning yeah. of chicken fat mm. it's just making sure everything's protected well carla thanks for joining the chicken fat quarterly podcast i i'm happy to come back anytime it's literally lunchtime and i i'm gonna go eat i hope there's chicken thighs somewhere for you so do i thanks bye The Bon Appetit Foodcast is produced by Carrie Polis and Christina Che and produced and edited by Emma Wurtzman. Our theme music is by Nathaniel Wurtzman. We have new episodes every Wednesday, and if you want to tell us about this or any other episode, email us at bonappetitfoodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.